filmmaking is very, you know, it's an emotional path. You know, it's it's about you know a certain fearlessness and about how you you handle your your material and how you use your instincts and and how you approach the subject or um, manifest it in the in the most authentic instinctual way. I guess in a, in two words, it's visual storytelling. Yeah, visual storytelling. That's it. I mean, it's you know. A lot of people are very capable of doing close-ups and, and a wide shot. It's you know the challenge is really storytelling. You know you've got to always reach higher. And you know no matter what project you're on, and I think if there's a, you know there's a lot of uh, you know there's you know, certain aspects of certain shows or films where they want you to cover things a certain way, and there's a demand for for that kind of uh, approach. But there's still, you know, you can't be defeated as a cinematographer, that's for sure. You can't not share your concept or visual idea of, of, of the storytelling thing. I mean, the worst thing people can say is no, and you just gotta learn how to how to deal with it and do your best and, you know, uh, just from, you know, remember as a cinematographer, you're, you're, you know, you're working for a director and your job is to get their vision the way they, the way they want it and action. Welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast, the place to be for interesting, inspiring, and insightful conversations with the people behind the camera on the most strikingly shot projects out there. I'm your host, Derek Stetler. Okay, the word host has a whole new meaning in light of today's guest and the project we're focusing on. But before I introduce him, I want to say thank you to everyone who subscribed and reviewed the show so far. If you enjoy it too, it would mean a lot to me if you'd do the same. And I want to thank Evidence Cameras for sponsoring the show. Now, my guest today is none other than Paul Cameron ASC. Paul has worked on quite a few visually groundbreaking films, including his first big feature, Gone in 60 Seconds. Then it was Man on Fire, Collateral, Deja Vu, the 2012 remake of Total Recall, the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie, The Commuter, and the last film of his to come out was 21 Bridges. He's also shot a few Super Bowl commercials. His cinematography for director Michael Mann's 2004 film Collateral was one of the first Hollywood studio films to embrace and reveal the potential of shooting with digital cameras. But Paul still adores the medium of film and shot the pilot for HBO's Westworld on 35mm earning an Emmy Award nomination and ASC Award nomination in 2017. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talk about his work with Tony Scott, how he translates a script into imagery, and of course, his work as both a cinematographer and director on season three of Westworld. We all have our role to play. There are machines in this world, but not like us. You and I have no mother, no father. We're alone, outnumbered. We have to be smarter than them, or they'll find us. I have to warn you, 
there are a couple spoilers for season three. So if you're not caught up with episode four yet, which Paul directed, go and watch it now. The show is extraordinary, and season three is an entirely new direction for it. Now, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we kept our distance and spoke from home, with Paul in the woods of Oregon and me in Los Angeles. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you, Paul, so much for coming on the Art of the Shot podcast. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with you. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for getting me back. Yeah, yeah. So let me begin at um, at the start. How did you come to be a filmmaker? And uh, are there any experiences during your childhood that have particularly shaped your aesthetic and what you bring to the craft of cinematography? Well, um, that's a good one. I... I I started um, shooting, I mean, I just started shooting uh, rock and roll, uh, you know, I think my first uh, music video, I was still in university in 1976, I believe, I think, for the B-52s, Rock Lobster, and um, I was in film school at the time, and, you know, to keep a very long story short, um, you know, kind of came up through New York and early rock and roll and, um, you know, started doing some commercials and independent films there. Uh, but I started, you know, um, I started absolutely on my own, didn't know a soul, went to university and went, you know, to New York City as much as possible, New York Film Festival as much as possible and kept very active and, you know, saw a lot of people filming around the city and, and, and realized I had to get in a union and in order to become a cinematographer I had to um, uh, shoot anything I could and I started shooting as much as I could and that included a lot of early pre-MTV rock and roll and then obviously MTV and onto commercials and films. And so what really initiated your your passion for for cinema and, and actually being involved in it in, in the craft of creating it? Well I lived um, in New York City for a uh, uh, most of the time in junior high school and high school, my uh, my older brother, uh, uh, Peter Cameron, um, and at the time he was uh, a, a regular working actor off-Broadway for the most part and did a lot with the public theater and Joe Papp downtown in Manhattan. So I was around theater a lot uh, while I was living with him, and of course he took me to, to you know, uh, countless movies, including, you know, 2001 and Clockwork Orange and many, um, you know, obviously all the Woody Allen and uh, films, you know, the classic cinema films and including in, in 70s films uh, like Serpico and, and, and a lot of great films like that. So I was around that world uh, just kind of mentally and when I had the opportunity to go to university, I, I just said I, you know, I felt like I had to go toward that direction and didn't know a soul in the business or anything and just went for it. Mm. So did you have um, a big break that you particularly attribute to where you are right now in your career? Well, I I think, you know, I, I did a lot of commercials and again, a few independent films, you know, for, for probably the, the, the first 10 years of my career. And, you know, I was uh, trying to make the move to Cal, you know, made the move out to California to shoot out there a bit, uh, from New York and, um, was trying to do bigger movies. And I, you know, it was just at a point, uh, where I felt like, you know, I, I was having a good career if I wasn't able to shoot some big movies that, that I'd have, you know, to be happy with uh, what I was doing, which I was. And, you know, literally a week later, I got a call from Dominic Senna and Jerry Bruckheimer to go do um, 
gone in 60 seconds. So that kind of launched, um, you know, the big, big movie, um, uh, path there a bit. So that was great. Did you feel prepared for that or were you, you know, sweating bullets, <laughs> so to speak and, and super nervous? Yeah, I think, uh, I think super nervous is, you know, was a good way to put it. I, but I was, I was ready, you know, it was at a time in my career, I think, you know, I certainly had, was putting you know tens of thousands of feet of film regularly through the the gate and uh, was ready to go and um you know i i i think the, you know quick anecdote is that on the first couple of days of gone in 60 seconds there were there were actually night shoots and and i had pl- you know planned with the ad and the director all these these massive sequences with chases and helicopters and car to car and rigs and dramatic scenes and uh everybody was looking at me like you sure you want to do all this and then you know kind of pull up the first couple of nights and the producer came up to me at the end of the uh, barry waldman after a couple of nights and he's like you gonna keep this pace up the whole time and i'm like i don't know and he's like no you're not <laughs> you know we just wanted to see if you could do it and you did a great job the last two days but we you know we got to take things to, you know because we're <laughs> so much work um in the first couple of days but right no it felt right you know it's it's you get the break and then you know when it feels right it feels right and uh, it was just great timing from the hand mm-hmm. yeah well you've certainly had a pretty outstanding career since then and i know you've worked a lot with um well you've i think you've done two films with tony scott right or did you do more uh i did two films with tony in a, uh-huh. a short i'll beat the devil uh one of those bmw films oh with, yes uh, i've seen that that was amazing brown. yeah it's great yeah it's, it's got james brown and gary oldman and clive owen at the end it's got marilyn manson so that was a fun that was actually a test, uh, you know, we, we, it was the typical Tony Scott thing where he said, hey, we're going to do this little film for BMW and we want to, I want you to think about this movie uh, I'd love for you to do down in Mexico City, you know, and I'm like, what movie? And, you know, he said it was Man of, called Man of Fire. And so we did, actually we did, you know, Beat the Devil, um, it was kind of a test, a photographic test, uh, uh-huh. which turned out to be. You know, something you know, I was very proud to be on, and still, it was, a, it was a great film to shoot for Tony. Even that that little short at the time was fantastic. So yeah, that was a very very cool series BMW did, and yeah. you guys used some very interesting uh, photographic techniques on obviously on Man on Fire, but on that short as well. Oh yeah, it was great. That's <clears throat> when so we started, you know, um, adapting cameras to you know more modern cameras to hand crank and. We were taking mm-hmm. reversal film stock and hand cranking it and developing it, you know, uh, cross process, ne- you know, like a negative stock and getting, you know, insane dailies back. And it was just, you know, exciting and kind of uh, just, a, just a good collision at the time working with Tony for me creatively. And, oh, I can uh, imagine. Well, you know, he's a great guy and a great friend and, you know, miss him dearly. But um, he yeah. re- really, you know, he he supported every cinematographer every single day. I mean, he just uh, he loved uh, painting a good scene, and cinematography had a lot to do with it. So he was very very uh, involved. Yeah, he he's really one of the um, one of the great stylists. I feel in certainly you know his generation, if not the history of cinema so far. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that that I imagine you know you you experienced working with him, and that he you know, kind of imprinted on your work. Uh, is, is there anything that you bring to your work today that you really attribute to him that maybe 
you've uh, done on Westworld, for example? Yeah, I'd say, um, I mean, for me, Tony was very influential in, in, in a lot of ways. You know, he um, encouraged uh, the use of multiple cameras when possible, and, you know, certainly shooting with two, three cameras at one time, even in a small room, was, was you know, kind of a, a prerequisite. And, you know, so I think, like, showing, you know, showing me a kind of, you know, a fearlessness with uh, being able to, you know, shoot close up slightly off angle, or maybe it's not, you know, we weren't matching lens sizes, we were going for a more raking shot that had more emotional value, or, you know, so there was kind of um, uh, a different approach to the coverage, you know, oftentimes, and, and you know, he loved natural light, and we, we constantly try to push things toward as much natural light, and, you know, I tried to light things and did for, for many times where he thought it was natural light, and it was, you know, just trying to, trying to I knew it, what he wanted, so we kind of, you know, kept it that way, um, um, you know, that was, that, you know, it was a great challenge working with him that way because it's you know he was very appreciative of, of of the results we were getting and and you know he he could see you know at the time for me the you know the passion for shooting reversal film and cross-processing it and mm-hmm. hand cranking and shooting the opening on 16 millimeter and cross-processing that you know reversal film was a you know or skip bleaching 100 percent on the on the negative not on the you know the release print and anything that I, it was an idea that i you know supported with a test and um, you know, he just constantly was letting the line out to go further. Uh, so it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can imagine on, um, on Westworld, it seems like you've absolutely carried over the, um, the multiple camera aspect of that in terms of getting a lot of coverage at once, but the show has such a very intentional feel to it. And it's, uh, you know, very cinematic and it was from the very beginning. So how do you mm-hmm. balance the needs of cinematic lighting and that very, uh, focused singular perspective, you know, of, of a single camera show, um, but doing so with multiple cameras, how do you plan that out and, and how do you balance the needs of, of that? Well, I think, you know, the, the balance really comes from the prep, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's, um, Knowing the amount of, you know, the, the appetite, you know, like this kid Jonathan's, uh, you know, loves to, you know, he loves to shoot great scenes, but he also has ideas for, you know, many additional shots. And of course I have ideas and we, we storyboard some stuff and then we just, you know, run and gun and, and hit it the way we want to do it to get the shots we want to get while we're doing it. But it's, again, it's this kind of, um, you know, seeing a rehearsal and then kind of zoning in and throwing in an extra camera there to get, you know, one small, you know, gesture or look that, that says a million things, uh, you know, that the other camera, mm-hmm. you know, that another camera with more conventional coverage might not get, you know, and I think that's the, you know, the, 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 the probably the primary use of it. And it's, um, you know, again, it's just, uh, Jonathan's fearless, uh, would rather, t- would rather try, and and you know realize it's if it doesn't work later than not try it at all you know and it's it's he's he's great about that yeah so as far as i am aware you you were involved with the show from the very first episode of season one and then you haven't been involved um since then and you came back for episode one of 
now season three in addition to directing episode four is that correct sounds pretty good yeah Yeah. okay so what has it been like um coming back uh after all this time and and as the story has shifted so much and now we're in a, a totally different part of the world that we're seeing how has the process of crafting the show changed between then and now you know again for me the the you know one of the one of the best experiences was getting the call from jonathan nolan to to meet and talk about doing westworld and then you know being involved in um in the initial scouting and kind of the conceptualization of what the world was going to look like with the western town and the park in utah and how to situate the park in utah and you know, that actually carried over. I shot a bunch of um, scenes for various directors in Utah in season one over a couple of weeks. And then actually, again, on season two, I did the same thing. And I shot in Utah for uh, a number of directors for a couple of weeks. And, and, and so, you know, I kind of carried through that second season a little bit. But, um, you know, when, when, when Jonathan and uh, his wife, creator Lisa Joy, contacted me about this season, it was, you know, uh, they definitely wanted to kind of uh, uh, reestablish the look. They, you know, well, of course they offered to, for me to shoot the the series, and Jonathan asked me at least to shoot his, which I did, and and offered you know for me to direct the fourth one. And um, you know, we started the year uh, traveling around Asia and Europe a bit, looking for locations, and. Uh, again, to be part of this round of, you know, kind of conceiving, you know, season three and watching him kind of begin to, you know, write and the ideas to come to fruition and what is LA in 2058 and let's shoot in Singapore and make this hybrid world and, you know, these kind of, um, you know, levels of involvement to me are much more interesting in a lot of ways. It's not just show up and scout and shoot. It's, you know, let's, you know, form the ideas, go to the city, scout it out. And, you know, again, I also, I shot the Jonathan's episode, but I also went to um, Singapore and shot many scenes for various directors and episodes this season over five days, as well as directing two days in Singapore myself. And, um, then going to Spain and, and, you know, shooting for, for, uh, additional directors, um, as well. So it was, you know, it's been quite, quite, quite an experience all around, um, you know, to be, you know, basically part of all the episodes and uh, on some level and, you know, it's great to kind of be, you know, be able to see the, the whole picture of a series like this, you know? Yeah. Now that's an interesting point that, you know, people, would never otherwise be aware of because your credit is only on you know one episode even though you're involved in in really the season as a whole did that same thing kind of happen on season one as well or was it just the first episode you kind of set the tone for everything and then you know uh you left afterwards season one i you know i just stepped uh, i stepped in and i think we did about two weeks of filming in utah to for all the the western park and um, you know, to tie in um, the town, which we was a set in outside of Los Angeles, um, and you know, into the park, the Delos Park, which actually exists near Dead Horse Point outside of Moab, Utah. So that, and kind of being friends with Jonathan and Lisa, and and you know, being involved with the show, and kind of uh, you know, getting you know. Uh, 
imp, you know, trying to help out the other directors of photography. And then suddenly at the end of the season, they're, they're hiring, you know, multiple, multiple directors of photography. And, and uh, you know, I'm trying to you know, just help them out with whatever input of, uh, you know, direction in terms of the photography and the, the kind of, not rules, but kind of ideas behind the photography for the show. Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the questions I, I really wanted to address about the philosophy um, behind a lot of the choices that are made. But it's interesting, you know, because the show has this feeling of a singular vision to it. So the fact that there are so many cinematographers that have been brought on and, you know, numerous directors over the seasons, and it still maintains that uh, cohesive feeling um, is a testament to, well, certainly Jonathan Nolan and, and Lisa Joy and, and, you know, their work as... Uh, showrunners, but I think also, you know, your involvement from the beginning and setting that, that tone visually. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's been great to like watch the arc of a show like this, you know, and I, you know, haven't done series uh, television all the way through. I've just done features and commercials for many years now and, and, you know, a couple of pilots. So to be involved on this level is, has been exciting. It's, you know, it's more creatively challenging. It's, uh, there's more responsibility. It's um, you know, you know, again, we're getting directors of photography to come shoot with us around the world, uh, and some of them have less experience shooting 35 millimeter film, and you know, you know, so it's it's kind of how to how to ever give everybody the confidence and support they need with the right camera gear and crews and and, and lighting and grip and and you know, put them in you know, the, the right position to do some good cinematography for these episodes. So that was great. I mean, even like, you know, shooting Singapore, we shot multiple units. We probably shot three units simultaneously every day and sometimes a night unit and we're overlapping. And some days I was directing and shooting the same day and, you know, again, multiple uh, directors. So that was interesting for me because that, that was very different. Wow. You know, it's not only the responsibility of directing a couple major scenes in Singapore, uh, a couple very big scenes in very big locations, but, you know, then to, again, shoot for, for Jonathan on episode one um, in many, many, many locations and coordinate all the drone work and all the other units. is It's a little... Uh, time-consuming it's it's a long day let's put it that way <laughs> yeah well i imagine more than that it, it must be incredibly uh mentally demanding to be able to switch gears and actually be effective in both roles like that how did you yep. how did you actually manage it and and pull it off <laughs> Were there, was there anything you discovered that was key to helping you actually be successful in in doing that no i mean uh, you know luckily i i directed episode four um and I had 12 days of shooting in New York City, and then I had two days of shooting in Singapore. So I, I had already done the 12 days in Los Angeles, and you know it was a fantastic opportunity and challenge that Jonathan and Lisa gave me. And I kind of assumed they were going to give me this you know action, hallucinatory uh, episode, you know, um, and. And of course, you know, I, when I got the script, I realized I got, you know, uh, you know, very dramatic 
episode that yeah. had, you know big character reveals in it and you know it's got some big stories absolutely and a lot of exposition and so, so it was um and you know the script didn't come you know you, you get 12 days to prep or 10 days to prep uh, an episode and I, I think i got the script after five days so i think i had two locations and a couple actors and so uh, it was it was great but they're so supportive and you know, uh, Jordan Goldberg, the, the writer, is great, um, great, great writer and a great teammate to, to, to kind of run with on the show. And, um, you know, again, Jonathan and, and, and Lisa were, you know, they're just so, so fantastic and supportive that, and, and we're fortunate we're friends and uh, they barely showed up when I was directing, which kind of drove me crazy because I was hoping they would be around <laughs> And uh, uh, they were like, no, 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 you got it together. You, know, you do it. You got, it. you know. And they also let me. You know, I had some input with uh, with Jordan in the in the script on episode four in the in the opening sequence with with Ed Harris and uh, where he, Ed is you know, pretty unhinged in the beginning and uh, the confrontation with his his daughter up in the bathroom. This sequence that I, I basically designed and pitched, and and they they loved the idea and kind of adjusted the opening of uh the script for it so i could do it and um yeah so there were a couple other things like that there were you know it was great collaboration and or, you know was, would love to do it again with them so i hope having the opportunity yeah and had you um had you asked them to direct an episode or was it just offered to you what was did you have to prove yourself somehow or no i think you know, listen, it's, it's, you know, I guess it was time, you know, they, they had spoken to me about directing in the past. I think maybe, you know, they want to give me the opportunity in season two, but I don't know if HBO was, was ready to do that. And then, you know, when I had the relationship, I think with HBO and JJ Abrams and, um, uh, everybody killed their films and they, they could see, you know, the level of films I work on and the, you know, the level of, uh, of work on the show and, you know, I think for Janet, you know, they're again, they, they, I think they wanted to put me in the driver's seat and see how I do because I, you know, there's, um, just kind of pushed me into it <laughs> in a good way. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. In a good way. Like, you know, here you go. Uh, and then, um, yeah, you, you know, you get your script and you, you make it happen. And, uh, we did it. You know, we, I think we did it. And, you know, we did 12 days and two days in Singapore. We're right on track. And, at regular days and I had, you know, all the top actors are in the episode, which is fantastic. Um, so I had the chance to work with, you know, with everybody, with everybody. Yeah. I think that's the first episode where they're all in one episode. I know it was, uh, it was shocking to me to, you know, when I read it, I'm like, uh, you know, why didn't I get the episode with two characters or, you know, that, you know, (laughs) kind of holding something, you know, it's a simple relationship that moves forward or something. And, and uh, no, I didn't get that episode, so it was good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, an amazing challenge. Well, speaking of the actors and, and the challenge, um, I mean, I know Evan Rachel Wood has called Westworld the acting Olympics recently. So what was the process like for you suddenly relating to the actors as a, as a director? And um, what, what did you learn about how to get uh, a great performance from an actor? Well, it, you know, Westworld is, you know, for a director is, you know, it's like being a, a, a coach of the acting Olympics for sure. I mean, they're, you know, 
very few shows have that many top actors, you know, I mean, the show's got many, many top actors in it. So it really is to watch them work together and the, the level of how they elevate their own work. And so, but the gift is really when they elevate each other's work and then you see it, you know, like you watch them feed off of each other and then they take it to a new place and you're like, okay, well, they, you know, you can tell these people are, are, are jiving, you know, and they're, they're firing on all cylinders and they're, they're getting something from each other. So it's a bit, you know, again, it was a bit daunting because, you know, as a new, as a new director, um, you know, you call cut, you, you can't just say, Oh, that's great. You got to get in there and talk about that take. You did this. I love that. You know, let's talk about this. That was great. I love this moment when this happened. I, 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 I want to know why you guys took it to here. I want to know why you did this. And, this. and then you've got to, you know, you've got to come up with a, a conversation and, and deal with, with, you know, not only the material that you're trying to, to bring on a screen, but how they're relating to it and their kind of fusion with the whole thing. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's pretty, yeah, I guess it's the equivalent of like having an Olympic team where you're, you're the coach and they're all on the bus and you, they open the door and they're like, okay, get in. And you look in the bus as you walk on and you're like, holy, you know, these are some of the best athletes in the world, <laughs> in the world here. But, you know, again, like, yeah, I think you, you know, you said it pretty clearly, the, the bar is set so high on the show and the level of actors or, you know, it's, you've got to have your game on and you've got to, you know, you've really got to understand the writing. You've really got to understand the show. You really have to understand, you know, a plot line that they're not familiar with yet, that, that you have the knowledge of and, you know, how, how to, you know, kind of put them in the position of being somewhere dramatically. They don't even know yet exactly why or the exact position they're in, you know, until, uh, until, um, the next episode comes out. And so it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act. And, and, you know, um, you know, for me, I felt very, very, very comfortable doing it and talking with the actors. And it was great to work with a DP, John Grillo, um, a season, you know, show regular, uh, last this season so that collaboration and howard cummings the production designer but it's it's and you know again it's like uh, you know i have familiarity with uh, you know wardrobe and makeup and visual effects and special effects and you know you you know i i like to work fast as a director of photography certainly as a director you, have, you know there's even more pressure you can you're balancing a lot more acts there so it's it's great you know to, to have a little support mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you mentioned about moving quickly, and when you were telling me about the amount of days, is that is that for the entire episode? It, it was only twelve shoot days. Uh, yeah, I think it's twelve plus two, so we did twelve days in LA and two days in wow. Singapore. So fourteen days to shoot an hour of extraordinarily high quality cinematic content. Yeah, how? How do you make sense of then going on to a movie and doing, you know, that same caliber of work with twice the runtime, but in, you know, four to five times the or more of the shooting time? Yeah, that's the challenge, you know, and it's and that's the, you know, the amazing thing with, you know, the level of, you know, of Westworld and, and these types of shows that are functioning at this level Um you know, again, the appetite is so high uh, and the bar is so high. So we're constantly striving to, to you know, make this great product. 
and then the re, you know the the real the reality of the the amount of days you have to shoot it and and that's uh, that's the complex thing and it's you know and that's that was kind of daunting for me in the beginning going you know you read that first script and you go through it with the ad you know carrie bruno and I, I, I sat with her and I'm like, geez, this is, you know, what do you think? And, and she, you know, we you battle back and forth. It's too much for the number of days we have. And they, they make some adjustments. And, you know, in the in this case, um, you know, once we had it locked in, it was like, okay, I knew, I knew. But, you know, like you get those days where, you know, you're like the big, there's a big um, auction sequence where John Gallagher is uh, brought into a party and, and um, taken away by oh, yeah. Jeffrey Wright. And there's all these yeah. people being, it's a beautiful sequence. being auctioned off. And it's a lot of, you know, you, you read that on paper and then you realize, okay, you've got, you know, a little over a night to shoot that sequence and a half a night for the fight upstairs. And you're like, okay, that's, that's crazy. In a movie, we'd have four days yeah. for the downstairs and we'd probably have two days upstairs for the fight. Or, okay, maybe we do the fight in one day. But, you know, I did... Did it, you know, the, the the scene downstairs, which has, I don't know, it's got double beats that it. it's, you know, it's got mm -hmm. six or eight characters and four different blocks of action and a lot of exits and entrances, exits to make sense of the geography and, and right. 200 extras and half naked, you know, or naked people. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, we, we went behind uh, on, the, on the second day and, um, uh, I had like three hours to shoot the fight sequence with, uh, with Evan and Luke. And it was, it was great because, you know, having shot a lot of fight sequences as a director of photography, you know, you, you, you kind of, um, you know, have an idea how to get through it and make it dynamic and kind of give up all your, you know, kind of specialty ideas or, or little nuances and, and just drive for, for the, the, you know, the great shots and setups to make the fight work. And then mm -hmm. have a little bit of time, you know, clean it up. So, you know, I, I, I liked it, you know, I like the challenge and, you know, you get it done and, um, you know, we had regular days pretty much and you know, we got the work done. Well, those are the moments really that don't just stretch you, but really test everything that you have gathered over your experience, you know, everything you've picked up and you know everything you've internalized about how how to make uh, a scene actually work and what really is necessary but the mm -hmm. the fact that you have such a short amount of time compared to what uh you know occurs on a film to achieve essentially the exact same outcome actually it doesn't feel like it's compromised or like it's a you know watered down version of what you'd see in a feature film well, i'm not so sure that's the case right now you know i mean i honestly i mean i think you know obviously in the bigger films that we we do you know the the you know i mean probably the last bigger one i did like that was pirates of the caribbean where you have you know mm -hmm. those insane resources and you know yeah a 95 day shoot schedule with an additional 20 days of photography after that so you know wow i just did a you know film with lisa joy and, and the film i did bef uh, before with brian kirk you know where you're you're you you start out you get the 50 days or 55 days and by the time you've scouted and you're about to do your tech scout you're down to 42 days and 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 suddenly the money is less and the time is less and 
due to actor availability, your you, your schedule gets flipped around, and you can't do certain things the way you want to do them. And that, you know, I'm finding more of, you know, just with my limited experience shooting streaming and and movies, is that 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 it's also on the producing end in the studio, and they're kind of seeing it similarly. You know, they don't, you know, I think they're, you know, it used to be that thought of a whatever. Remember the movie of the week uh, phrase of like this kind of network uh we're you know we're gonna shoot 10 pages 15 pages a day well we're doing that maybe we're doing six or on a big you do six or eight on a big show or two to four on a big movie yeah the numbers are the same but it doesn't feel compromised like it yeah you know like like i feel you're saying like it used to be so what have you learned by actually, you know, being on both sides of it, on the huge films that have the amazing schedules and on Westworld where you're achieving still very, very high quality, you know, similar feature film caliber content and, and dynamics between actors are all there. You're, you're not, it doesn't feel compromised in any way, and yet you're doing it on a very short um, timetable. So what do you account for that, and, and what lessons would you... Um, say you've gotten from that that you could share with people who you know want to achieve that kind of quality but don't have the time on you know on their projects to do it well i think you know there, look there's a magic to every shoot day i mean as well as you know well as you schedule it it's it's always it's always a miracle so it's something you know not always but many days it's a miracle you make the day for some reason you know and, and you kind of you kind of overcome it and i think i think here you know what i what i took took away from directing certainly is, you know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, humbled by, by the experience because now, yeah, as you know, working for a director of photographer for so many years, I've relied on many department heads and uh, used to that communication, but suddenly directing, it's all the department heads and it's every detail mm-hmm. and it's every detail of every word. It's every detail of every costume with every detail of every makeup of every prop of, of every edit of every sound effect of everything you know and and so you know it it you know it, it certainly um, made me appreciate uh, directors specific you know specifically the ones i know and love the even more um you know what i what i took it away as a dp is still you know just kind of a you know a reminder to to really Take care, help help directors take care of every possible thing they can, every detail with every department, and be on top of it, and and be a great collaborator in every way. You know, and mm-hmm. the more you empower people, and I, and that's the thing. You know, and I learned this as a DP is certainly working in crews around the world. As soon as you kind of empower, a, you know, a good crew and give them, you know, a, a, provide good leadership and give them clear information and, and help them execute things and, and celebrate their work on it. You know, that as a director, you know, is the, is the same, was the same experience. And, and, you know, the more, the, you know, the more, empower people across the board the better results you're going to get and you know i was fortunate because i had a great group of people from you know jonathan lisa and the people at kilter and the support of um, you know hbo and jj abrams and these people just go ahead and do it you know step in there and do it you know don't you know don't be afraid and uh, that's good you know so it's nice it's nice to have that con- you know that, that boat of confidence and go out and do it mm-hmm 
Yeah, well, when they empower you like that, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're given the resources to be empowered, but then, you know, they also entrust the confidence in you to, to be able to use them. You know, I was reading recently about the virtual set technology that was pioneered for The Mandalorian. And then I heard that that was also utilized. It was shared with you guys and it was yep. utilized uh, this season. And then I also know that in season one, you guys did something, um, you know, that, that seems a bit out of the ordinary, especially these days where you built sets in Utah specifically to capture the background landscapes for, you know, very real in-camera um, I'll step out onto know, a porch and they step out yeah, on Utah. Exactly. You know. Rather than using yeah. green screen to achieve that effect. And then in this season, you, you, you know, used an intermediary solution that kind of had the benefits of both green screen and real locations. So can you, um, were you involved much in the episodes that, that use that technology? And, and if so, can you talk about the process? Of course. Yeah. We, um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, the great thing, you know, collaborating with, with Jonathan is, you know, he, I think his first, you know, his first feeling is, is how do we accomplish this in camera as much as possible? And how do we, you know, how can we make the illusion as authentic as possible and, and the least amount of visual effects? And, you know, that, that goes from, you know, again, like the, the pilot, uh, in season one and, you know, uh, the work that we did in Utah where, you know, we'd bring set walls. And so we, again, shoot like the reverse angles or, uh, looking out the, you know, toward the windows and then they, you know, walk out onto the porch and have a couple lines of dialogue and pull them back in and then shoot the reverses back in LA inside the set, you know, or, you know, whether it's the balcony and, you know, Dead Horse Point for the Delos Corporation and, you know, shooting, you know, on a, on a piece of uh, a steel deck with a railing and then comping in, you know, the walls behind you know, on the edges of the park, you know, that, you know, so the, this has been a great kind of collaboration and being able to kind of, you know, again, conceptualize, visualize these, you know, how, how to do it. This year, you know, Jonathan, we, we went, you know, during pre-production, we went down and looked at the Mandalorian set with um, John Favreau and, and uh, Greg Frazier and Barry, Barry Iodine down there shooting it and we we you know absolutely fell in love with this idea of of, of virtual um a virtual set in a 3d uh led environment you know where, where all reflections and light were natural for the most part and you know we obviously this the the need for for western world didn't mean getting a you know a massive stage with you know 20 million dollar <laughs> um led wall setup which i think mandalorian you know ended up um doing I mean, that, maybe that's not the price but certainly at a super high cost so jonathan was in love with it and i was in love with it and i was like well how do we what do we do and it's like well you know we never had the opportunity really to do the led wall because there wasn't a lot of vehicle you know there was no people driving or anything that we would kind of traditionally use led walls for so there was a couple of big sets like um this boardroom and uh, an office for tessa thompson and you know that that uh, we built it with with the idea of shooting it uh designing it you know with super reflective floors and shooting it with practical led walls we also did it with all the drone there's you know, futuristic drones um, in the show, as you know, and then um, mm -hmm. so all the drone work was done against the LED walls and uh, much of the the jet interior that you see the that functions on a, on a, on a 
a few different for a few different sets or was you know predominantly done as an LED wall as much as possible. So, you know, again, that's you know part of putting the show together with, with Jonathan and Howard Cummings, the production designer. This is really you know the time where we kind of research the technology. We go down and we look at it. We see the application. You know, can we can you know what's the advantage of going 100% analog here and what's you know what's the newest technology and you know what's what's the the best creative choice you know for for executing something and that's the, the drive the some of those sets on this season really stood out to me like you know where were they where did you find that kind of a location and now i'm starting to understand that it was a mix of real locations and you know the virtual sets which made them feel like they were real but actually they were recreations of of things actually not so much i mean you'd be surprised it's um, really the jet the jet is a you know the jet is a, a massive set that they built the boardroom was massive set you mm -hmm. know yeah it didn't exist it, you didn't go somewhere where that is like a corporate office somewhere but it's you know like the the delos corporation is you know is basically exists uh, it's a building in singapore that that's been kind of placed in this hybrid city los angeles 2058 which is you know kind of a combination of singapore and los angeles and mm -hmm. uh, based on kind of a vertical architecture with overflowing uh, rooftops gardens and you know so it was really kind of insane how much we shot um interiors in uh, Singapore and I you know even on my episode I, I got two of the most gorgeous locations that we saw in Singapore one was the Atlas bar yeah which is a big scene with um, uh, Vincent Cassell and Tanny Newton and the Atlas bar is like this is brand new you know I don't know I think it is insane it's like one of the top four bars and the most expensive bars in the world you know, it's th like three stories high, deco interior, floor to ceiling, just packed with, you know, priceless bottles of booze that they t walk up and down ladders on and rolling ladders like old libraries. And you're like, wow. And then the National Gallery, which used to be the Singaporean uh, Supreme Court, which they've turned into a National uh, Gallery Museum. And it's, it's basically this melding of the old, you know, old uh, Supreme Court there with this glass structure and, you know, engulfing it. And, you know, so I, you know, I looked at with two fantastic locations and then I, you know, we shot so many beautiful big locations there with, with various directors that are actually interspersed through the series. So it's, you know, that and a lot of exterior drone work that was, you know, we, we, we tied in and some, and some, other big exteriors yeah there's some i mean just the recreation or not recreation i guess because it doesn't exist but the 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 creation of that future los angeles in 2058 is such a compelling vision and you know it feels so realistic so grounded in something that we would recognize as the future and yet you know a, a real world now but just not los angeles in the way that it currently exists yeah so i i really love what you guys did with that and and you mentioned the drone work which makes me wonder i mean are you guys shoot everything on film but are you shooting with film cameras on drones or is the drone work you know uh digital capture integrated with film as well well we actually we do predominantly 
film drone work still 35 millimeter um cameras on drones believe it or not we're still okay. much as we can but um you know there's there's some significant aerials in los angeles day aerials i built a system with uh, an aerial company called uh, pursuit aviation and along with the drone company we use a lot xm2 we we rebuilt a whole uh, old shot over uh, gyro stabilization rig for uh, the helicopter for a 535 film camera to fit uh, uh, so all new uh, engineered parts for it to accommodate the mag and displacement magazine and so we were able to shoot film for that and we did use a little we a slight amount of digital on the show very very sparingly um, I shot some of the night I did all the night uh, aerials with a Sony Venice a 2500 ISO at the 2500 base so I could use zoom lens at 2.8 and get all the detail, and that, that was amazing. So, you know, it's um, we do bounce around a little. So we'll do, like in Singapore, we end up doing a lot of the, the drone work um, on uh, an Alexa Mini off an octocopter ship only because um, there were certain tether requirements that we were set up to do with those rigs and that on the film drones. and. Um, so we, you know, we've kind of mixed it up a little bit with that, you know, the technology and the necessity of, uh, and mm -hmm. sometimes the attributes of digital at night a little bit, we use it. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. the night shots on this show are absolutely, they look pristine and they are, you know, highly detailed and very rich and doesn't look like what film is capable of, uh, doing, you know, at night. But, um, you know, the, the technology now to, to gain detail out of film scans is also always improving. So I, I wouldn't have been too surprised if, if it was film, but the fact that it was the Venice makes a lot of sense. Yeah, then, and it's, you know, the funny thing is it's only a, a few drone shots a few in the night, the night aerials and um, occasionally a wide shot for a scene here and there. But, uh, you know, we did, we did some massive testing at the beginning of the, the season and, you know, Jonathan, Lisa, uh, myself feel very strongly that, you know, the, it was okay to have the wide shot, some wide shots on off of the Venice to get that detail in the night in the 2500 mode. But we, we you know, as soon as we went, uh, you know, for medium or close up, we went to film, you know, it was just, mm -hmm. that's our MO. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. You want to keep it as consistent with, you know, the rest of the series as possible. Um, well, were any unique filmmaking technologies or noteworthy gear um, used to capture this season beyond what you mentioned with uh, some of the stuff you helped engineer for the drone work? Jeez, um, you know, I think it's it's you know it's it's um, you know the new technology was you know the the LED walls for sure. Oh right, and yeah, we, yeah, we mentioned that. I think it's. Um, that was that was probably the predominant thing technology wise and no i mean i think every you know you'll see you'll see the usual kind of uh every episode tends to have some kind of shot or scene that's from an interesting perspective or point of view that we haven't seen before and that's always fun to kind mm -hmm. of you know, it was fun to shoot one with uh jonathan on his episode the first episode where the camera's in the back seat of a car with with evan rachel wood and uh, she, they're they're trying to drug her, and you know Tommy Flanagan leaves the frame, and she grabs a knife and cuts herself free and shoots two guys in the car. 
we see Johnny, you know, we see somebody get shot in the rear view camera. She walks in the front, shoots a couple of thugs. And then we see, you know, uh, her running back and the camera pulls back. She gets in the car and, and drives over the other um, thug and pulls away. And, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, not so much new technology, but it's this, again, this kind of like just thinking of, you know, how to, how to drive the audience. What do you want the audience to see? What kind of coverage, you know, and in this case, Jonathan was super clear that he wanted this strange subjective point of view of, of, of you know, seeing the action out front and seeing the action through the rear view camera at the same time. So it was fun to do stuff like that. And, and you know, again, it's always like we'll always take something to like, how can we do this, you know, in the most uh, the right way, the most creative way. And, you know, what great technology can we do? And then what do we end up doing? We, you know, we wedge the seats a little wider and we stick a slider in there and rip a camera off the Steadicam because it's already been stripped down and we put it on the slider and we push it through seats, you know, like in the most analog way. But, <laughs> the most analog, um, yeah. Yeah, it's fun though. And it's, I think we all, you know, are probably, you know, we're, we're the technology is always changing so much. And it's, I take, to, you know, it's, again, it was great to get into a film helicopter I had pursuit um, aviation and XM2 set up um, remote wireless wheels for me in the back seat so I could operate my own aerials. Oh, cool. You know, wow. I, you know listen, I love, you know, I love so many um, aerial operators out there and have relationships with a, a number of them on a lot, a lot of movies, but you know, to, to, to be in the backseat of a helicopter and talk to a pilot and a, a DP that you haven't worked with or, or, um, you know, you're trying to coordinate and give your idea and then they have a different idea and then everybody's kind of, we you do a few takes and you kind of get it right. Sometimes you have to move on even if you're, you know, super experienced people as a DP and now shooting in my own aerials, I was able to, you know, I'm able to kind of really, um, get in there and, and do what I want fast. And I had a great relationship with John Tamburo, the pilot. And so that was good. And, and, and also XM2 sets up the master wheels and, uh, I either operate the drone shots or stick Chris Harhoff, a camera steady cam on it. And he operates it on the, off the wheels. So we, that's that, you know. And, uh, yeah. Well, Chris, Chris is an incredible operator too. I think last year he and uh, Steve Metzinger won um, camera operator yeah. of the year uh, in television for their work on on Westworld, and he was involved since the very beginning with you, right, in season one. Yeah. Listen, Chris. Chris has done a few movies with me, and I, you know, I recommended him um, to work with with uh, work with us on. Um, Westworld and you know he's done uh, two seasons now and you know he loves it and you know he's really the you know like uh, the such a such a force uh, around the camera in such a great way he's uh, he's a gentleman he's incredibly well prepared and incredibly talented and has a lot of great input and as we can see from the many films that he's done and certainly the ones I've done with him is, is, uh, he's just an amazing operator and filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. He really is. And he's such a great guy too. When, you know, when you meet him in person, I've met him a few times and he's just the nicest guy. The approach to camera though, the, I think it was in season one. Um, 
Yeah, it was. Where the camera, there was a philosophy behind the movement where, mm-hmm. you know, there was kind of a dictate set where um, it was in studio mode a lot of the time on dolly tracks to kind of mimic the way the hosts are in their defined, um, you know, loops in the way that their lives are um, are run. And, and then that was you know, used intentionally to great effect when all of a sudden handheld was introduced, it created a very um, noticeable shift that maybe mm-hmm. people picked up on or not. But, you know, it, it suited the story. It was storytelling through camera movement. Uh, in this season, were there any specific dictates in terms of the approach to the camera or the visual storytelling? Or were you guys more free just to, um, you know, shoot in, in, in this new world now? Well, I think it's, you know, we wanted to keep kind of the syntax of the show, but there, you know, there was a sensibility, um, you know, even for the exteriors and aerials and everything for, you know, the, the previous Westworld park and that, that world, you know, we wanted the camera to feel as if it was every, you know, the people at the Delos corporation watching, you know, there were like slight mechanical moves in the wide shots and, you know, there was, there was a certain sensibility that Jonathan uh, really wanted that we try to get all the DPs to kind of do and directors to do. And I, I think here, you know, the, the significant thing is being away from the park. Um, it's, you know, and as we know, it's about Dolores is on a, is on a, on a new mission here. And, uh, she's got a, you know, quite a bit of momentum and now, and, you know, you've also got Tandy Newton and, uh, that side of the, of, of, of the, robots also on the move and Jeffrey Wright and you know they're coming from different parts of the world and they're converging you know in in one place and there's a lot of locations there's a lot of movement and people coming and going and and bizarre scenes and so you know it's I think the biggest thing was you know certainly with Chris Harhoff and and the directors is to get them to move the camera and you know, pull and push people into a scene and get the momentum of characters moving through the scenes and, and, and not so be so static, I think. And, but it's also from the writing. It's the, you know, the movement of the, of the, of the scenes and the writing and the, and the, and the plot line helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the writing is fantastic. That's one of my, you know, favorite things about the show. It really feels like all elements are firing, you know, on, on all cylinders. You know, the way that the camera has been kind of feeling like the Delos employees watching in season one is an interesting point you bring up because I never thought of it that way, but, um, you know, thinking back, it did kind of feel like that. Like we were, we were always sort of spying on them. Uh, yeah. And then, and then now in this season, it feels more like you know we're kind of uh, we're kind of with them in this more um, uh, present, you know, kind of dramatic sort of unhinged way. Oh yeah, for sure. So yeah, yeah. So um, I guess are there any? Is there anything specifically to this season that was um, set in terms of uh, the look? Um, in terms of rules, otherwise, for for how this season should be captured, uh, beyond even camera, like lighting or or any sorts of um, hints as far as 
you know, revealing the truth of, of something. Because I know, you know, fans always like pick apart this show and try and find meaning in every little choice that's made. So is there anything like that going on in this season? Well, I think, you know, there, there, there's, it's, it's kind of a different uh, plot line in terms of what is, you know, the end of the game, you know, uh, and, and how we get there. And, you know, we're, they're not in the park. So I think there's less, you know, less uh, mythology laid into the imagery and, and, and kind of the art direction. But there is still quite a significant amount. <laughs> and you know, mm-hmm. it's just the way that Jonathan, Lisa, and the writers, and and uh, Howard Cummings, production designer, want to layer it with that, so they keep that 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 um, throughout, which is which is fantastic. But you know, practically, you know, I it's funny, you know, shooting a test with these guys, it's like you can't just go shoot like a, a couple couple little looks. You really have to do extensive tests and really really show them, you know. What 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 what, you're, what I was thinking the world is going to look like lighting wise. So we wanted to tie it into what we've seen before in the park, so the show didn't really look different. But you know, I did reset color temperatures and faces, and you know, we stayed away. You stay away from lighting faces with warm light and kind of keep it slightly on the cool side. And you you uh, you you know, still use color separation the ways you want to make depth in a frame, but avoiding you know, uh, theatrical gels and kind of, you know, uh, ambient colored light that, that didn't, you know, wasn't more authentic to the scenario there. And Yeah, we don't, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like any of these sort of theatrical lighting effects to give this impression of the future that you see in, you know, some other films or, or shows I've seen. It's also pretty simple. It's, you know, the, the night urban landscape of uh, Los Angeles and cities around the world's changing. You know, we, 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 we all grew up with this orange and uh, green mm-hmm. light, you know, just pervading urban environments. And, um, you know, those have been slowly are getting replaced with a wider LED light. And, you know, Los Angeles alone is probably a, a third to half of the city at night is now under a white light instead of... Uh, so it's naturally... You know, I took that cue in the fact that, you know, when we scouted in Singapore, those lights just never existed. So uh, <laughs> they, uh, all LED light anyway, or if they did, they got replaced immediately because they're ahead of the curve on everything. But, um, you know, that that was the kind of cue. And I think scouting Singapore was another thing like, OK, you know, yeah, there's still those those funky areas, The you know, the. the uh, street food vending areas and those, those you know, which are we, you know, we photographed and it was actually in my episode as well from Singapore. But it, it's it's had a tie in this future world and an old school world is always, you know, and the conceptualization of uh, these worlds, you know, since you know we we did, you know, Jonathan and Howard, we don't see the future as this kind of. 3D holographic, you know, Blade Runner or Ray Bradbury world, you know, it's, it's see the concept from the shows, you know, it's a cleaner, it's a cleaner world. And, you know, it's not inundated with digital billboards and, you know, holographic people talking in space at night. And, right. You know, that doesn't exist. So, um, you know, I had to rely on how do you make frames interesting? How do you make lighting interesting? Well, it's even 
subtle things like throughout episode one, you know, at night, whatever, there's constantly there's scenes with coverage where I'm, I, you know, I layer in reflections of fluorescent tubes or graphic shapes or, you know, create something that, that feels, you know, graphic and futuristic, but isn't, you know, um, uh, you know, over the top or, or, you know, it's just something subtle that we try to do. And so that's, that, those become kind of like, not the rules, but the, the suggested path for, you know, the other DPs on the show is like, okay, here's the test. Here's the first episode. This is what we did. This is the riff. We like this stuff, you know, we're passing it on. And, you know, so hopefully, you know, through the season with the other DPs, you see it, you know, you'll see some of those uh, techniques used. You know? Yeah. And maybe hopefully expanded upon too. Yeah, for sure. That's, uh, that's interesting. So what you were saying with some of the techniques that you use, um, to make things interesting, like with the fluorescent tubes and, and the reflections, you're talking about using lighting, um, in ways that isn't to actually light anything but just to create visual intrigue basically right exactly interesting so th there's a lot of lights in the in the in the sets that look you know like they're integrated into it like they're practicals but of course because everything is you know it doesn't exist in the world it's it's all built how much of a you know because all those decisions have to be made ahead of time before a camera is pointed at the set and you know you're there saying ah we need a little you know a little light here in the corner to make it a little more visually interesting so how involved um are you and the other dps in in you know integrating those lights and crafting the look of those sets it's a good it's a good question is it's you know working with Howard Cummings the production designer I mean I only in season two I only worked with him on the the, the you know western stuff in Moab it's the only part I shot but I enjoyed working with him and then as soon as we started uh, scouting and working with Jonathan on, on season three you know he picked up a lot of on on a lot of our discussions I had with Jonathan and, and just how to layer some, you know, some of these sets and how to, how to take that, you know, the great work from the park and, and the laboratories and the weird offices that they had in the, uh, in, the, in the park and how do we make, you know, that's the, you know, the, the kind of feeling of the LA world and the Singapore world. Um, and then it's also, again, when you go scouting in Singapore and you see like, you know, you go down a street and it, it's got, you know, it's got a walkway and it's got stairs leading up to the walkway and all the stairs have backlit LED light in them and it's graphic and it's lit beautiful. And, you know, we're seeing some of that, but I, I got to tell you the the truth is Los Angeles, you know, it's, I still live there and love it, but it, it's lacking uh, with the architectural scale and kind of imagination with, with lighting and, and, future look even in its in, in its contemporary architecture and you go to some other cities and you're like wow this you know there's a helix bridge with you know led lights at the end of every you know pole and it creates a pattern and you're like oh my god you know we're we're still like up lighting our buildings with you know colored cans or something right <laughs> so we were you know, it's like, how do you, you know, you sit, you, you know, so you sit with Howard and you're like, come on, let's figure this out in a boardroom that, yeah, there should be a big light hanging over them in the boardroom and that it's not a light source, but it should be a visual statement. And uh -huh. you know, we're going to see down this hallway. So what do those lights feel like? Where is that leading to? And, and so, yeah, I got involved with, with Howard and I think, you know, I, I did set the tone 
you know, with with the gaffer Russell Ayer and 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 John Grillo and Zoe White, the other D, you know, two main DPs this season, and I'm like, you gotta you gotta get them to build this stuff into your sets, you know, and they, you know, they're like, yeah, we we want to, and uh, so they they did it as well, and. Yeah, it's a, it's the prep and it's the involvement. It's it's much more of um, a feature level uh, of collaboration on the show and expectation for sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, it it shows, but you know, on, on TV shows that doesn't you know always happen. So I wanted to ask about it. And then, well, having been involved as a as a cinematographer and a director then on this season, what on the episode that you were responsible for, how much of the episode were you involved in after shooting were you involved in post-production or after you did your part on set was it basically you know turned over to um the showrunners to edit and you know and sort of and shape how it turned out well for me when you know we finished um uh, principal photography the editor gets i guess i believe anna got eight days uh they got eight days as an editor before directors show up and they give you four days as Mm -hmm. director and you know, so you got to review your material and know your performances and, um, you know, you sit there and you go through the first cut and, you know, this is all new to me, but traditionally, you know, the, the editors are responsible for cutting it exactly the way it's written, uh, or the showrunners and writers to see it. And, uh, um, so it, that was great. And I, I realized I wanted to try a few things, um, editorially um with anna in the short time that i had so i i was very prepared i I went through all the material and i picked all the takes and performances that i wanted to hinge the scenes around and i you know went in and on the first screen i knew that anna basically had about 75 percent of the scenes were more or less structured around the same uh performance takes that i i wanted so i was very happy about that oh great yeah so so then I was like, okay, how do I, you know, I'm going to, I got four days to do this. So I decided I'm going to finish it in two days. <laughs> you're, you're already so completely ambitious from the pace of shooting the show. You bring that into everything now, huh? Exactly. So I'm going to finish it in two days and spend two days trying, um, trying some, some well, radical changes in the edit, you know? Oh, so your philosophy was to, to get it to, um in two days so half the time getting it to a place where if it needs to be that then it's great and then two days to try all sorts of crazy stuff and then in case they don't work you still had it you know set where it should be yeah exactly okay i follow and you know i mean again anna did such a great job Uh, i actually thought i you know it would take me three days to to get the edit where i wanted it and then uh a day to uh, try some, some, you know, just break down a few other sequences and try some, you know, radical cutting changes just to see how, how it feels. So, but, you know, again, I, I was able to do it in, in a couple of days. And, you know, there, there's a couple of things in the episode where there's some big character reveal. And it's, it's the timing of the character reveal was, and, you know, it was written one way. And, I, you know, I wanted to see what it felt like with some more radical editorial uh, reveals. And, um, so that was one thing. And then, I, you know, the opening of the, the episode again is something that, you know, I, I it, you know, the, the idea for the scenes were, was there with, with Ed and being alone in the house and, um, con, you know, being confronted by his daughter. And, you know, I, I designed the sequence so that 
and was really unhinged and then it was you know kind of um you know uh, jump cutting takes and and cerebral thing where you know his blood's dripping down on his head and he looks up and the chandelier water pours down and he comes out of the bathtub in the bathroom where uh his wife committed suicide last season you know his daughter appears in his mind and the camera travels around them jump cutting as you know ed hallucinates the daughter so you know it's great to you know be able to have um, you know those those kind of uh, sequences um, that to be part of those in the writing phase or certainly in the, you know, when you do your tone meeting and have clarity about what you're doing for the scenes with the showrunners and pitch your ideas and, and then say, go for it. And, and that's, uh, you know, that, that, that was a good thing, you know, because they, they were very supportive with that. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I also imagine in the fight sequences, because those the editing of those feels uh, very effective is the word I would use. Um, and of course, the reveal, you know, um, spoiler alert for anyone listening, the reveal of, well, I'll just say the reveal of the truth about Dolores, let's say, um, was, yeah, you know, it was impactful. It felt like a revelation watching it. Um, depending on, you know, I guess how astute you are and, and how much you're trying to predict what's going to happen next. I'm sure maybe some people predicted it, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it it worked really well. Was, was that an example of, um, one of the moments that you tried something, uh, creative and different or, or was that how it was scripted? Well, I think it's, you know, that, that, you know, that, that story being plot, you know, the, the, the story, the character reveal of, uh, Dolores characters is, you know, was when I read it, I you know felt like, oh my God, this is such a responsibility. How, how the hell am I going to pull it off? And you know, explored a lot of ideas of act with the actors of and talking to them about their feeling of, of what nuances of of Evan Dolores do, do they use in the reveals and you know, editorially, how is this going to feel if it gets separated or if it happens? You know, bam, 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 and I you know the the original originally uh, there was more the scenes were structured differently on the reveal towards the end so they were much more separated and I think uh, you know for me editorially I, I think I overdid it and you know luckily Jonah went back in with Anna the editor and they they kind of found the balance between the two and mm, I follow so I think it's you know and I think it's also the opening of you know, the opening of the sequence, I went too radical on the, uh, I mean, I went crazy on the directorial part of it and really, you know, got some amazing stuff with Ed. But then I, I, you know, I cut a very radical opening sequence, um, very jarring. And, you know, uh, they cut it back and made it made it less intense. And, and, you know, again, I think we kind of found a middle ground on it. You know, again, I was fortunate because Anna's such a great editor, but um, you know, I could see how, you know, first time directors and or directors, you know, with experience going in, you know, on shows where they don't know anybody and how they work and having this four days of, of cutting and having a disaster, you know, doing so because of, uh, well, for various reasons. <laughs> so luckily I don't, you know, I didn't have that. Yeah. Good. It's a very supportive one. Yeah. Good, good. And, and while you were, I'm curious about just, um, another element during the editing of this show when, um, 
I mean, the way the way the music is on this show is is brilliant. What Ramin does, and and it really makes the show come come alive. You know, it's it's like a whole other yep. character the way he does it. So when you're editing a sequence like, um, you know, well, let's use that reveal for example because the music really um, underscores it there. Is there temp music you're using? Do you edit it and then it goes to Ramin to score, or does he kind of? Yeah. How much? Wh- well, what what level of, it, of involvement does the music have? Is that at that point? Well, I I mean I I guess a lot of places don't necessarily do this. Some do, but you know, Kilter Films has it set up so they do their 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 kind of uh, sound effects and 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 music and the scoring um, editorially in house. So basically. You know, um, I'll have, you know, we've got a brief discussion with with the showrunners about what type of music, like in the auction sequence or at the reveal. You know, we we don't talk about it all, but we go through some of the rough beats of, you know, or knowing that we're we're going to reprise, you know, the Dolores Western music when she reveals herself at the end, coming out mm-hmm. of the dark, and you know, like those type of music cues that are kind of written into it, and then. Um, you know, basically when the footage hits, hits kilter films and they start cutting, even, you know, even before I, you get there as a director, they've already got incredible temp mix done. It's already mm-hmm. cycled back through Ramin and, and, and they, they put in, you know, pretty close temp music, Okay, <laughs> you know, like within a week or two. And then certainly any any um, uh, songs that need to be cleared or whatever they get put in and 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 but and then they do the rough mix and it's you know it's it's awesome it's because you, you know you can sit there in the editorial and ask them hey could you could, could we just do that like it's a that's a great piece of music great movement that Ramin has put together but if it just had a little more tempo and it was just slightly more upbeat or whatever the note is and then two days later you got the music correction. And I it's see. Like, it's amazing, you know, because it, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's that thing of you could walk into an edit room and they, it'd be a great editor, but they did, they, they don't have any support with sound effects or music. So you could have a very dead soundtrack and a, right. you're trying to analyze the scene editorially and you're looking at it without any vibe and you're like, God, it's never going to feel like this because it's going to get layered with these sound effects and, this music and you know this drone sound of a machine in the background or what you know whatever it is and 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 you know in this case cut the film set it up so that you know they 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 understand the importance of everybody experiencing everything at, at you know the closest level to completion you know as you got right like effects included like they they got to bang stuff out and get it back and you know immediately you know it's crazy wow well lucky you because you know i I can imagine it must be you know without the music and the sound effects really you know Mm -hmm. pulling their weight when you watch uh, such an important scene like a character reveal and it doesn't have those elements you know it it makes your work as a director look less, uh, you know, less impactful. And then you can start, you know, trying to edit it different ways just to make it work better when it's not the edit that needs to change. It's, you know, elements added on top of it that really need to, you know, underscore what the edit's already doing. So good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you, you know, had so much of, uh, you know, so much of a sequence put together as close to what it actually will look like and what you intended it to be when you did end up seeing it. 
So as the show is called The Art of the Shot, is there a specific shot from either episode one where you were the cinematographer or episode four that you directed that stands out as one you're particularly proud of achieving? Yeah, I think um, a particularly interesting shot we did for episode one with uh, Jonathan Nolan directing um, kind of came from from the writing and the script where um, it's basically uh, described as the camera kind of watching this from the, the backseat of a vehicle. And, and what it is is that uh, Evan Rachel Wood, the Dolores character, has just been uh, taken away and uh, drugged many times by uh, Tommy Flanagan's character. Uh, they're, they're underneath the kind of an overpass uh, in Los Angeles and they're waiting for the drugs to take effect on uh, Evan Rachel Wood and another vehicle starts to pull up and gets Tommy Flanagan's attention and he turns and he looks and walks away. As he walks away, the shot starts and basically what it is is the camera starts inside a car back behind the seat of a large SUV and, and uh, Dolores is camera left and a thug next door uh, in the front seat with a gun and there's also another thug next door camera right there with a gun. And, uh, but what we really see is Connell's in the navigation screen through the rear view camera walking away towards a vehicle that's shining its headlights at him. And there's kind of a quick moment where Dolores grabs a knife. She she's stashed and like with a few precise, fast moves, she cuts herself free, grabs a thug's gun, shoots him and the thug in the front seat. So the camera hasn't cut yet, right? It's all in the back seat. So we've seen her execute two people um, and she exits the vehicle. Uh, now we see through the windshield, we see two thugs in the front of the distance turn toward the car as the camera kind of tracks in through the seats. We see Dolores uh, walk around to the, you know, in the front of the car. She executes the two thugs. The camera starts pulling back, racks focus back to the, the, the navigation screen for a beat as uh, Dolores gets in, uh, puts the car in reverse, and the camera's back all the way now. And uh, we see her and we watch her back into and over a, a thug in the rear view camera on the navigation screen. And she puts the car in the drive and pulls away um, over the thug uh, for the last time. And it's a very, you know, it's a, it's all described from this one point of view in the script. And then, you know, scouting with, with Jonathan was great because, you know, he he's sitting there literally whistling the music that he uses in the edit, and and um, you know, he really did kind of visualize this in the writing, and it was just more for me about the execution of it. How do I light it? Um, uh, you know, two directions because we wanted to shoot the you know the the camera looking forward toward the nav screen uh, with the rear view camera and have the rear view camera live. So it's a little, mm -hmm. you know, letting bo both angles for that. But um, it's funny because, um, you know, again, we're, you know, we love to shoot, we, we shoot film on the show. And I had kind of thought about doing the shot digitally just so we could really see it in time and rehearse it. And But we decided to stay with film for the shot and that, that travels through, you know, through the seats. And it's... Um, it was kind of funny because then I used the the Venice Rialto rig, which is kind of the you know the umbilical rig for the Venice camera, where you detach the the, the, the optical block from the front of the camera. Right. Yeah. I think it just won. Yeah, it just won the um, 
Technical Achievement Award this year from the Society of Camera Operators. Oh, it's great. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But it's a great it's a great tool. Um, and of course, we put you know we were going to put a fisheye on it for the rear view, but it was a little too wide. So I think we did it with a ten or twelve mil, uh, and and we so we staged the action front and back and. Um, what I, but I, what I like is that the, you know, I, I could tell from Jonathan's first pitch with the shot that, you know, it's basically like, let's take the audience down a, you know, visual path and, and have them kind of, you know, experience it and figure it out in one shot without cutting. And, you know, in fact, the, the shot's not that complicated. It's, you know, kind of, um, uh, uh, an underslung slider rig that travels through the seats of a car you know, from the, the very back to the, towards the front and the, and the screen and then pulls back. But, um, you know, in, in its analog fashion, it still has, you know, the shot has a, has a point of view. And I, mm-hmm. and that's something I appreciate as a cinematographer when directors bring a point of view to the table, you know, which uh, often I'll, I'll, I'll recommend. But in, in this case, it was so clear. It was just kind of a joy to, to, break it down with them and, and talk about how to execute it and, and, and pull it off. Hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm actually surprised that it was, um, there was underslung there when you had described it, I was thinking it'd be a slider, you know, just kind of mounted on the, on, you know, up on the floor of the, of the vehicle. Interesting. So how did you, okay. Just to, to be sure I understand the, the the camera view from the car was created using the Venice. Yeah. So okay. basically, since the cameras in that you know you're over the back seat and you're looking forward. Yeah. Uh, so you see the rear the view. Me- yeah, the rear view live. You see the rear view live. Obviously, the car's in park, and we're taking a little liberty until she puts it in reverse. But right. But you know, it's it's just the idea of it. You know, anything that kind of helps the audience to stay engaged and have the audience have, you know, trying to figure the story out and figure the action out in an interesting way, I think is a good. Yeah. And to, to show two shots at the same time, two points of view in a way, which is, um, you know, inherent in, in the moment of the story. It's not like doing an editorial effect, like a split screen or something. That's very cool. And and it was live. It wasn't a matching the yeah. action to a recording no and i i mean that's the thing with you know with with jonathan working with him that makes it so interesting it's like i'm like well we'll shoot them separately right and you'll just comp that in right that's normally it. yeah that's normally how they think to do it and it's like why and i know you know it's the same thing why why means why why composite if we can do it real you know and certainly if i said it was impossible to light it you know or or make it look right he'd say okay let's composite it but you know, listen, and, and you know, it's a, it was a big location, and the action, you know, is is you know, we're seeing it as you know, is looking back at slightly compromised angle anyway, kind of with a wider angle. And so you know, um, I just went for it. I you know, I had you know, condors on both sides of the uh, the road above, and lighting everything up on both directions as best I could. Yeah. And uh, so those two cameras, you know, you talk about how you like to have multiple cameras covering a scene. Was it just those two or were there also others at the same time? I don't know. We don't know how to let the cameras sit idle when we're mm-hmm. shooting stuff like that. There's, you know, there's not stunts, but, you know, gunfire and, and action. And, and I can think of like 
two other setups we had at least at the same time, knowing that for whatever reason, if the sequence, if it became a sequence, he'd have some more coverage for it. But it's just, you know, just shooting, you know, the additional angles. I can't not do it, even if the concept is one shot, unfortunately. Right. Interesting. Well, also, you know, especially it's not like 17, you know, it's not like a whole movie concept so yeah you know it's you know there's many times directors will you know and, and not jonathan necessarily but many directors will say no no, no don't worry about it we're only going to use this shot and then of course you see the edit and they don't use that shot they use a different shot or you know a selection of shots there and so i you know i've always followed my instinct and my gut with this stuff so i feel like you know the best thing is to get those extra shots when you can get them anyway so it worked out well and you had the time to do it which is also a little bit of a surprise given the fast pace of this show well the um not given time to do it, it was, no you know unfortunately I, I don't know we have you know there's other other coverage of that sequence where they pull up in the injector and then Tommy Flanagan walks over and we talked about it where, where he, you know, he, he, he tries to make out the person in this rideshare vehicle and we can't tell who it is. It's his, actually his doppelganger. But, right. you know, uh, when you, you look at the reality, I think we had, you know, four hours, three to four hours to block and, you know, block that and shoot it, light it and shoot it. Maybe four hours. My gosh. Everything. So, you know, um, the additional coverage is, was more like what cameras can I get in there with, you know, that are, that are lit well, that I can hide with the other two cameras. And that's what we did. I think we just ran two, two additional cameras with four total. Uh, I see. Okay. So it's not like, I'm glad you cleared that up because initially I was understanding you had shot the sequence for the, you know, the one shot and then, um, redid it for the other angles. No, I wish, you know. You know, I wish it's, um, you know, again, we, you know, uh, as we spoke before, you know, I, there's, there's times, you know, I, I, I am a very strong advocate for those additional cameras to get those shots, you know, um, that are, you know, particularly unique or, or emotional, but that you may not have on your shot list, you know, or you may not be discovering mm-hmm. the heat of the moment, you know, and, you know, I think, you know, in the beginning, working with Jonathan way back on the pilot, I think he was leaning toward, you know, one or two cameras. And then he also kind of you know, uh, has come over to the other side uh, and is fearless with multiple cameras. And, and, you know, I think as a director to DP, I can tell he's always asking, if, how do you feel about adding a camera for this or shooting this? You know, and it's, it's very simple to communicate if the lighting is, is good or if it's if it's horrendous then we're not going to do it or is it a is it a good compromise and and i and i think that's that's kind of the production world we're in right now you know is is a you know and, and part of the idea of fearlessness is you know it's better to get the shot sometime and have it maybe not perfectly lit or you know within the vision that you have but you actually get the shot and get that that moment which which really helps a director and editor later you know mm-hmm. yeah you don't want to compromise anything but but i 
you know, there were there were scenes I remember shooting with Tony Scott on a couple of films with him where I just really felt like Jesus, the light. We're not. We always shoot backlight and we always shoot crosslight, and this is front light. And it's you know, it's it's bothering me. And then of course you see the edit, and it's those three seconds from that camera that are just stunning. You know, mm. or, you know, emotionally, and that's you know, and that's 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 what I'm an advocate for. For what exactly are you referring to in that case? The not front lighting. You mean being fearless with multiple cameras? If we're getting a camera in there, you know, and and having the light somewhat compromised. um, Uh, If the shot is emotional. Something, and if the shot's emotional, yeah. Or it's the additional camera. It's a tough one. You know, I... You know, I, I mean, it's like there's there's ways to go about shooting, and then there's spontaneity. You know, all mm-hmm. all the planning in the world, and then you watch something. There's many times um, on Man on Fire that I have, I still own it. It's an Airy two um, C uh, with a column motor, and you know, board out the the gate on it, so we could shoot two three nine on uh, three purple i think and, oh wow and it has a column motor it's crazy and and a 200 foot mag and you know i just put you know uh like an 85 to 200 spherical zoom on there or something like that and leave it in a canvas bag and keep it on set with a you know a small battery so i can just grab that and lean against the wall and fire off a shot oh. and then Sneaky. You know, many, 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 many close-ups of Denzel Washington and Men on Fire from that, that 2C. And, um, oh. uh, How do you wish your focus? Do it yourself. DIT. Do it yourself. Yeah. DIY. <laughs> yeah, no DIT in that case. Do it yourself, you know. Um, you know, it's, a, it's about, uh, the, you know, the, the more you can get into, you know, filmmaking and creating emotional film and taking the chance the better off you are the more you do co- yeah. coverage and uh you know you know get a wide master and a couple overs and get out of there that's that's when you really you know um you're not you're not necessarily making film too much <laughs> yeah i understand film, but you're not you, you don't have a point of view of your shots and you're you don't have a point of view of your scene outside of a, a schematic and that's mm. fortunately that's not filmmaking to me. Yeah, I well, I completely agree. It's it's not storytelling. It's not visual storytelling. It's um, more like um, a production line, like a factory, you know, making yeah. a, a product. So for you, what um, what is your creative process when you read a script and you are determining what these emotional shots are going to be that are not just the bread and butter of filmmaking, you know, the standard over the shoulder, you know, master shot, and then, you know, just get out of there. Um, what, what, what do you think about? What's your creative process to determine those shots? Well, I think the, you know, the script process is pretty simple and it's always been this way for me is that, you know, I try to read it all the way through the first time and really look at it, you know, like words on paper, like I'm reading a, you know, a piece of fiction or, or, you know, anything without without uh, trying to extrapolate ideas and you know begin a, uh, some kind of creative process you know so I'll read it and I'll really try to sit with it to see what the movie is about or you know an episode or something that's about what is what are the key you know kind of uh, obviously storylines and, and, and plot lines and emotional 
uh, arcs in the in the in the story, and then it's then you know I, I start process that I call you know ba basically like um, you know visualization and conceptualization where you know you begin to kind of visualize the movie in your in your head and you kind of start conceiving your ideas conceptualizing your ideas and so I'll, I'll kind of write those out quickly and if I don't know a director I'll start pulling some visual material right away and you know, I'll make a, you know, a kind of a lookbook and, and, and just write down some initial ideas or, you know, maybe take a, um, a photo of a, a part of a script and a photo, you know, of an iPhone photo of another, of, a, of an image and put them together and, you know, basically build a book hmm. for a meeting that isn't so much a book to get the job, but a kind of a sketchbook for myself and, uh, you know, um, because it's hard. It's like anything else. You might a number of us get a number a number of scripts to read, and you know, there's films that we really want to do, and films that that we we're not sure we want to do, and you know, we take you know take these meetings, and I try to follow through creatively and, and walk in with this material, and oftentimes send it ahead of time. You know, and that that's really. Um, you know, you're kind of taking a chance doing that, sending it to directors, you know, maybe your ideas and, and some visual thoughts, you know, ahead of time. But I find it's, it's always been kind of a more or less a positive uh, approach to it. And then because I feel like once you get to the meeting, there's 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 two things at a meeting. It's either um, if a director keeps talking about his or her film, like my film, you know, uh, my film, my film, or I see, I see. I mean, if you want a movie, you've got to turn those meetings around to we, you know, right. like right away. <laughs> so, so I find it often helps if you, you know, if you do send stuff ahead of time and, and you, you, you know, you take that risk and there is a good response, then I think, you know, good directors, you know, uh, are more interested in even talking to you. And it's backfired a few times, you know, where I you know, really wanted a project and, given some really good material to people and gotten the feeling that I was going to get the movie and then didn't get the movie. And then suddenly, you know, I see the movie on, on the screen and I see, you know, some, you know, references to my reference. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> but listen, we're all, you know, we're, you know, we're all, we all like to think we're new and inventive and original with our material. But, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's just, you know, um, coincidence, but sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would argue another possibility is if the material is very strong and especially if it's written a certain way, um, there's really only a few shots that would really work to tell that story. And so naturally, you know, uh, any talented cinematographer would see it probably in a similar way, but you know, Maybe not. You know, it's our job to, you know, take the chance and, and pitch pitch ideas, you know, to, to directors and producers and studios. And, you know, it's like um, I remember pitching uh, this, you know, the, the frozen uh, moment camera thing you know, system on, on Swordfish. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was like it was a shot that took two days. I think the shot took a million dollars to do it. 
Yeah, um, I, I think I read that. Yeah, it's like 300 cameras times four positions with, you know, special effects and visual effects and, you know, going through set walls and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it was a complex shot. And, you know, like you, you know, you pitch it and, and Dominic Senna was like, this is a great, you know, I love, I love Frozen moment, but you, you know, you've taken it into a dolly and you're, you're tracking through this Frozen moment and you're going 360 almost, you know, um, so it's a different concept. You're elevating the concept. Let's pitch it to Joel Silver and, and Warner. And we did, you know, and, and, you know, Joel was like, how much is it going to cost? <laughs> and, uh, and, um, you know, you figure it out and they approved it. That's amazing. I'm sure there's a whole story behind that, but the, the basic facts that, uh, cause that was fairly early in, in maybe not in your careers as a whole, but in your, um, Hollywood, you know, big budget cinematographer career, it was, uh, that was your first big film right well outside of gone in 60 yeah oh that's right that came first yeah that came first but it's you know it's the same same thing um you know i'm still you know newbie in the business walking up to joel silver and 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 steve papazian and the guys at warner and saying you know hey i think this would be a really cool shot and they're like what (laughs) and frozen moment was a narrative device at the time we've seen it we saw it in commercials Chris Cunningham mm-hmm. did music videos. It was amazing. You know, he he was the one who actually kind of inspired me the most because he he was he was kind of using it more like a dolly and and less just like a circular kind of freeze frame thing. So he's the one that really gave me the cue. You know. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the fact that you got you pitched the idea and it was going to be such a huge portion of the film's budget and it was approved at that point in your career where you didn't have so much leverage either that that's a huge uh a huge win for you and how did you even know at that point how to pull it off did you t- just talk with friends uh, you know who'd, who'd worked on those types of shots before i'm trying to think of that oh, i don't remember the name of the company i i we used at the time but you know basically meeting with them you know that before i pitched it i did the research so that's the other thing is so you knew you could do it uh, so i went through the whole thing and i was like you know if i do this and have cars come over the you know and thing explode and then trek through the wall and back out the you know the you know window with no glass and you know go through the car and and that whole thing so you know i kind of i talked to the frozen you know frozen moment camera people I forget you know again but and then I talked to special effects and you know kind of you know work with the AD Steve Danton um, and and before we pitched it to the you know director and producer and and you know never believe the studio so I did enough research to know like shit it's gonna take a little time it's gonna take like two days basically mm-hmm. like, you know actually it was 450 cameras setups right so we had this rig so basically i had to bend a rig and travel cameras through a car or whatever and build the four sections of the pipe and then they they moved the cameras i believe to different sections of the pipe and that married to four or five airy cameras running at 120 frames at the end Uh, of it so ah that's how you got that slow motion after well exactly so that's how it only did that kind of um yeah, it was new at the time, you know, which was great. But, you know, the thing is that, you know, I was looking to have some impact of it because I, I visualized the sequence a different way when 
I read it, you know, it's basically this, you know, this girl goes out of, you know, she's got this vest on and it explodes, you know, they, she crosses like a barrier. She's a hostage and she crosses a barrier that sets off the charge. And, you know, I saw it just getting lost in this kind of action sequence and, you know, explosion sequence, which we've seen over and over and, you know, how to tell the story in suspended time a little bit, but, mm-hmm. you know, not to dwell on that. Cause I mean, that was a great idea for that film. That was kind of a, you know, it's again, that, <clears throat> that, that's what I call like conceptualization in a way where you get some of these ideas when you read the script, you know, you, you get that idea like, you know what, wouldn't it be great if we just stay on this close-up, you know, of this woman, you know, for this entire scene? And, and yeah, you go and you pitch those ideas. And, you know, we're seeing that now. We're seeing it in shows like The Outsider and other shows where, where you know, directors and editors and producers and streaming companies are, are like, yeah, we love filmmaking. We're going to let, we're going to let, we're going to, you know, we're going to let these ideas manifest themselves so we're starting to see it and it's exciting Mm -hmm, it sure is it's actually the fact that we're talking about this um, shot from swordfish is interesting because i remember now i was thinking back to that shot just uh, the other week because the last time I, I happened to see Swordfish, um, like, I think four months ago or so when it was on Netflix. And then um, the other week in episode two of Westworld, they um, did a, a shot that reminded me of that in uh, War World. Yeah, you know, you know the sequence. So yeah. I was like, ah, oh, that reminds me because you don't see a shot like that so often where they're moving through a frozen moment in that kind of a way. Uh. At some point, I'll be able to tell you how they did the shot in, in, in Westworld episode two, but it's going to surprise you. Hi, let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode, Evidence Cameras. If you're in the Los Angeles area, Evidence Cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met. They're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera related, including helping you create your vision. They strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list, which I might add they can do no matter what you need. With tons of gear and extensive relationships, they can help you get any piece of equipment you want. Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown LA, I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. Okay, so one of my last questions I, I want um, I want to be sure I ask you, since um, you know fans uh, really just pour over every detail of the show because every choice. Uh, not just feels so intentional and meaningful, but, you know, over over the past se- seasons, people have, you know, noticed things and they've turned out to, um, you know, reveal major, major plot points, for example. So is there, I mean, I remember pausing actually for a while, staring at a pool of blood on the, on the ground, looking for a pattern in it, looking for some meaning, yeah. you know, yeah. cause, cause the train has, uh, cause the show has trained us to do that. Uh, the camera movement, of course, suggested it as well. But uh, as the director of episode four, is there anything that uh, fans should look out for or maybe not notice on first viewing? Oh, geez. Um, gosh, I don't think we had, uh, I don't think there's any, any any layered surprises there, although okay. I have to look at it with a, a fine-tuned comb myself uh, uh, when it comes on next week. But... Um, be interesting to see. I don't, you know, we certainly, 
you know, I, it's hard because sometimes I don't know, you know, like there's props and things and, you know, things placed in the frame that I might not be a hundred percent aware how they function in a, in an episode, you know, two episodes mm-hmm. down. So I can't answer that completely. Right. Uh, okay. But, um, I'll keep my eyes out for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, for the record, the, uh, the pool of blood on the floor was not, uh, the blood, no. there was no pattern in the way the white and the red were interacting or some, no, I think something know, like that. I, I think you'd be happy to know that was, you know, like, uh, they actually let me pour the blood and I, and the, and the, you know, the, the, the cortic, cortical fluid that, mm-hmm. uh, that's that what it's called. Yeah. Alcohol. So, so it's actually, you can picture me on the ground trying to make it look like a Rorschach, um, uh, painting there of right. a collision of, of cortical fluid and blood, which is uh, you know an unusual uh, thing that we haven't seen in the show there before. So no hidden pattern. Although again, they might have done some visual effect thing or something. I'm gonna have to look at it. Maybe you're seeing. Something. Yeah, they could have. I look closely. They might have done something. <laughs> yeah. Well, either way, the way it is, it's so abstract. I'm sure it is like a Rorschach test. People see whatever they uh, want to see, or you know whatever. They yeah. they have inside them as as what they think is going to happen next. Yeah. Um, okay. So speaking of what what happens next, we're at a very interesting time in the history of the world, and um, certainly in the film industry right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of breakdown, and um, you know, a lot of change that is you know, in the works right now and, and people don't even know what that change is. So what are you doing during this time to stay creatively challenged, inspired? And, and what do you, what do you think, you know, from your experience so far in the industry? Um, how do you think things might change? And, and based on that, do you have any advice for young filmmakers, um, you know, who are feeling disempowered, lost and uncertain about, you know, what's coming and, and how to, how to navigate this time? Well, I think it's, you know, as shocking as, as, as kind of the, the re, our reality right now is, you know, with, the, with everybody basically staying at home is, you know, there's a kind of a, a, a collective pause here. You know, it's a time time to take a little bit of a deep breath and, and you know, take the opportunity to kind of reset reset uh, some things in our, in our own lives. I mean, I think it's the key thing as a DP or as a director is, you know, I'm trying to stay inspired with um, the way I normally do with watching a lot of, a lot of films with my wife and, and, and television uh, streaming shows. And, you know, it's trying to, we're up here in, in Oregon in the woods, but we have the internet. So I'm able to, you know, surf pictures and museums and photographs and, you know, I stay involved with the American Society of Cinematographers and we're doing a lot of Zoom conferencing and we're Zoom conferencing on, on Lisa's film and, and, you know, getting ready for when when things get back into production again and go down and shoot some aerials in Miami. And, you know, it's, I think, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's scary on a lot of levels because we don't know how production is going to start back up what it's going to look like where we're going to be able to go shoot uh who's willing to go there to shoot it uh or maybe not for a little while uh we there's so many so many variables that it's going to it's going to be hard to 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 feel it out but i think you know the only advice and the only thing uh i can say to anybody is that you know things will will get a uh, good creative balance will happen again and 
opportunities are still there and will be there. Um, it may just be a little bumpy for the, you know, the, the period that we're coming out of this may be longer than we, we think. Um, it's just to stay involved now. It's, it's like, you know, it's the same thing I tell young cinematography students, like, you know, you gotta have the discipline every day to shoot something and, you know, you take your phone, you know, especially now you get to shoot, you know, 4K in a phone and, on a, and, and, and you know, cut on, on a Final Cut Pro on your phone, <laughs> practically, you know. It's like, you, you know, you, there's no excuse to, you know, not to, to it's like a, a, a training for the Olympics, you know. Think about the people that were scheduled to go, you know, in a, in a couple of months to the Olympics and now they're going to go in a year. Yeah. So wow. now, you know, just think of the same thing. Like, you know, you're, you know, you're train, you're, you're training to do something, you know, and you're, or you're actively doing it and, you know, you're being, you're being asked, you know, globally, collectively to take a pause here and for, for the, for, for trying to save some lives and, and yeah, well, it's going to affect things. And, but, you know, I think it's, maybe it's a pause we need right now. Maybe there, you know, maybe there's just a little bit of a reflective time is going to help us all and make us better craftsmen and artists and down the road oh i certainly agree especially of course for the world and for you know everyone in it but but for artists specifically that reflective period is is where you know all the ideas emerge from anyway so i think probably you know people say like nine months from now there's going to be you know a huge baby boom but uh i would say you know whatever creative uh, production incubate incubation period you know whatever timetable that is uh, a while from now you're gonna see a huge uh, boom of you know amazing work whether it's you know in television and film in music as a result of this time as long as people aren't yeah. too you know freaked out and stressed to be you know doing anything creative that's also a huge hamper to any kind of creative work it's an odd time but uh you know, I think some, you know, a lot of people are doing, you know, are, 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 are spending that time, including myself, you know, working on a script or that I've been writing or, or, you know, whatever the project, the mental project, the challenge is, is now's a good time to tackle it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'm doing the same thing. Well, I'm so grateful for you taking the time right now to speak with me for, for this podcast and for sharing so many insights about, um, about how Westworld is captured. It's been such a privilege. Thank you. Good, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Paul Cameron, along with Evidence Cameras for sponsoring the show. I'm Derek Stetler. If you gained value from our conversation, please share and subscribe to help grow the show. You can follow me on Instagram at Derek, and feel free to message me there with comments or ideas. Thank you. Thank you.